Gospels to the little book of Joel. If you found the book of Hosea, you went a little bit to the left too far, come back one book. The book of Joel, chapter 1. And it's been a couple of weeks. We had a snow out. And Pastor Luke teaching last week. And so this week forms really the introduction. It's the beginning. We're going to pick up in verse 1 tonight. And I want to really focus in on one very specific thing, and that is the day of the Lord. Uh, it is very, very, very important that the body of Christ not confuse this particular day. The definitions, if you will, from a biblical standpoint uh, are found in all of these scripture references that, that you see there on the slide. It's in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, First Thessalonians, Second Peter, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's also in Jeremiah called there the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a reference to the day of the Lord. Christians throughout the centuries have become confused over, well, what is the day of the Lord? Some people think that the day of the Lord is simply any time that God acts. That is partially true. Some people think that they were very specific large events that have happened over time. That is also true. But what the day of the Lord truly is, is a day that to us tonight is still yet future. And that day is described very, very carefully in Scripture. The problem that people have with it, and the reason that we're going to spend the study tonight on this one specific subject while looking at the first 15 verses, is that if you get that picture, you realize from day one, God has been saying, look, here's my plan. You can either get on board or you can run from it, turn from it, go the opposite direction, and you will suffer the consequences ultimately of doing that. Though God, in his essence, is love, he also is perfectly just. And ultimately, he has no choice, no choice, but to deal finitely with sin. He is going to do that. And so throughout your Bible, what we have, and here in the book of Joel, uh, the day of the Lord is mentioned five times. Uh, it, it is very easy to see. It is found first here in the first chapter in verse 15. And it says, For the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And so when we... Begin to map this out tonight. I want you to be very, very clear that what we're looking for now is how do we determine what God is trying to say when he uses that phrase. And so as we look at it for the definition, we, of course, look to the word. But I also want to remind you, and I will show you in Scripture, that it is also a concept, it is a series of events, that culminate with one very specific event. So there are really three days of the Lord in that regard. 
They all refer to the ultimate and final one, but there were things that happened called the day of the Lord that represented looking forward what would happen. There are things that happened in biblical times that represented God's hand of judgment in a way. There have been things in our world that have happened that represent God's hand of judgment in a way. But what we are looking forward to, not because we're going to be here, but because God said he would do it, is the day of the Lord. And it is unbelievably important that we get this, because as you know, the first time Jesus came, he came as a lamb to the slaughter. Amen? He came to give his life a ransom for many. Amen? He came as the one who would be the servant of all. When he comes the second time, we see the other side of grace in the day of the Lord. He comes as a warrior conquering king to defeat sin. He's not going to come back as the lamb. He's going to come back as the lion. And when he comes back, he's not coming back to die again for mankind's sin. He did that once and for all, your Bible declares it. When he comes back, he's coming back to destroy sin and everyone who participates in it. So you need to understand that God has a very different side that he does not want to place on this earth at this moment, and he's left us in the age of grace. Almost a hundred times, the day of the Lord, the great day, the day of Jacob's trouble, his day is mentioned. So if he mentions something a hundred times, I think he wants us to take note of it. Amen? I don't believe that he would have said something a hundred times and go, well, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. You know, I was just metaphorically speaking. The day of the Lord to the body of Christ should be something that strengthens us. And before we get to our passage tonight, I want to share with you from the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you'd turn there, because Christians should not be worried about the day of the Lord. And so when people come to me and say, well, you know, I just, it's just so dark and it's so, you know, just seemingly so judgmental of innocent people. Trust me, if God's going to do it, it will be perfectly just, because your Bible says it will be perfectly just. When God does it, even his justice and his punishment is in love. So there will be no other out but the day of the Lord when it comes. In verse 1 it says of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. When he uses the word brethren, who's he talking about? The church, Christians. He's not talking about unbelievers, amen? He's talking about Christians. He says, you guys, I should not have to tell this to. For you yourselves know perfectly that, notice this, the day of the Lord. Is that referring to the rapture? No. And you're going to find out that it's not referring to the rapture of the church. It's something that's far, far, far different than the rapture of the church. The rapture will have already happened. And we know from this passage that that is so. And that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say, peace and safety, 
then sudden destruction comes upon them. If he's talking about believers, the only other group of people that would qualify as a they and a them would be who? Unbelievers. So when they, those who do not, because he already said, you guys, I don't even need to tell you about this. You should know this. When they, the unbelieving world, says peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as the labor pains of a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. We're going to see as we look at the day of the Lord that the day of the Lord culminates with several events that you all are familiar with. They are not good things. Notice what is said. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, notice he emphasizes which day, the day of the Lord, should overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. So he makes a clear distinction between those who will go through it and those who will not go through it. He's talking about destruction. He's not talking about, well, you know, there's kind of war, and there's damage, and there's disease and sickness. He's talking about utter destruction. And so he says, For we are not of the night, nor of darkness, and therefore let us not sleep. Now he goes back to the Christians. He says, we need to be awake on this subject. That's why we're teaching this study tonight. We need to be awake on this subject because God ain't playing games. He is going to send at some point in time Jesus back to do exactly what your Bible says will happen at the day of the Lord. And so he says to us, as the others do, guess who the others are? That's them, that's the they, but let us watch and be sober. That means undrunk. That means completely of the right mind. And so he says, For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. He says there's light folks and there's dark folks. And he's not talking about race. He's talking about redemption. Amen? He's talking about saints and ain'ts. He's talking about sheep and goats. He's talking about wheat and tares. He's talking about those who are saved and those who are not saved. And so he says to them, But let us who are of the day, again, he mentions the same day three times in ten verses, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. Can you put that on unless you're saved? The answer is no. Okay, and love, and as the helmet of the hope of salvation. Why? For God did not appoint us. Notice the differentiation again. There are those who are of the darkness, those who are of the light. The us, the brethren, the body of Christ is the us. God did not appoint us to wrath. Circle the word wrath. Because the wrath of God is never, ever, anywhere poured out on believers. 
Not in the entire Bible. Ever. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen? So if you're a believer, do you need to worry about the day of the Lord? The answer is no. But to obtain salvation, see, there's the other option. You got wrath and you got salvation. You got saints and ain'ts. You got ins and outs. You got those who love Jesus, those who don't, those who are in darkness, those who are in light. It's real clear who died for us that whether we wake or we sleep, we should live together with him and therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. So, the day of the Lord to us actually can be a comfort because we know that we are not going to go through the wrath of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a promise, Lord, and we do rejoice. But we also know, Lord, that the time is short. The day may well be at hand. God, it could happen at any moment. In the twinkling of an eye, you could rapture your church. And then these events may well begin to unfold nearly instantaneously. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through the power of your word. Instruct us now as we study it. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the nature of this day. Notice what it says, and we're not going to go there, but in chapter 2 it says, For the day of the Lord, again, just take the phrase as meaning a day that God is going to pour out His wrath. We'll get to what that actually is in a bit. But it is, of course, referring to the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of days, the age of the Antichrist, if you will, the final years of mankind's sojourn on this earth without God. It's referring to the time that Daniel said completes his 70 weeks. It is referring to that time when God is going to have had enough The last person will get saved. There will be some saints that get saved during the tribulation. But by and large, the age of grace will end on a given day, and then the day of the Lord begins. The day of the Lord is inclusive of several specific things. Those several specific things are a launching point, which is the rise of the Antichrist. The rise of the Antichrist brings about a one-world government, a one-world religion, and a one-world monetary system. Once the Antichrist comes on the scene, for three and a half years he will make peace with Israel, and he will pretend to be their friend. He will break that covenant, as Daniel said, in the middle of the final week. And then for the last three and a half years, all hell literally will break loose on this earth, as Satan's time will be very short. And during that period of time, very few people will be saved. Israel will be left with 144,000 witnesses who will have come to the knowledge of Messiah. So that day is great, and it is also terrible. It has the capacity to bring about the salvation of all Israel, as Paul declared in Romans 11, that one day all Israel will be saved. It will bring that to fruition. And so as we look at this day, there is a twofold nature of it. 
Malachi chapter 4 says, A great and dreadful day. And so as we look at it, it, it is very clear that to some it will be great. Really for us it will be great because we'll be gone. Amen? Uh, anytime you can get out of a bad situation, that's a great day. Amen? Uh, we were coming back this last weekend. We blew reverse out in the transmission of our Durango, which was what we towed uh, our boat up to June Lake with. And, and I don't know if you've ever driven across the Mojave Desert, but doing so when you think your transmission's going to blow up, you, you think, hmm, this is not a good day. And when you get to the other side of the desert, you go, hallelujah. It was a terrible day and a great day. We made it out, okay? You see, it's a great day because the redeemed of all time, that's you, that's I, that's anyone who's ever received the Lord, uh, will will have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a great day for us. We're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, sitting down with Jesus. We're going to have been at the Bema seat of Christ, receiving reward and crowns. It's a great day. But it's not a great day for people who don't know Jesus. It's a terrible day for people who don't know Jesus. And the reason you need to know both is the hope that you have, you're not going to go through the bad stuff, but the challenge is to make sure that people you know also don't go through the bad stuff. So it can be a great day for as many as received Him. It can be a great day for those who call upon the name of the Lord. But it will be a terrible day for all those who reject the one and only plan that God has ever had to bring man into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? No Jesus, no heaven. Your Bible declares that plainly. It will be a very terrible day. And just as these things that we will see as we go through this study tonight proclaim, it began with the Assyrian invasion. It began with a bunch of locusts that would come, and we'll see that tonight. Those were types of the thing that God was trying to get across. And as we look at the issue of typology, some people, well, you know, I just don't believe in types. Well, you don't believe in your Bible, because your Bible clearly gives things that are similitude to something else. They are like something so closely that if you examine them, they point you to a truth that's yet future. That is what God is trying to do when he sends a horde of locusts. That is what God is trying to do when he sends the Assyrians. The people didn't listen, so he sends the Babylonians. The people didn't listen, so he sends the Romans. The people didn't listen, so he sends the Greeks, the Persians, the Medes, and everyone else. But the striking contrast is this. What you read in your Bible, in those verses we began with, about the day of the Lord has never happened in the course of human history. It's destruction on a global scale. It's not little regional warfares. It's not a simple locust plague. We're talking about the destruction of ultimately almost two-thirds to three-quarters of the population of the world. There's never been a war like that. There's never been bloodshed like that. 
There has never been times when man, men were vaporized. There's never been times when the bodies strewn across the valley of Armageddon and people went through and they could collect the parts that were left from warfare and they were to fuel their homes for seven years. hate to tell you this, there ain't no trees there and you can't do it with firewood. The whole thing was completely forested. It still wouldn't work. So what is the day of the Lord? There are global expressions of this. That is the ultimate day. And throughout time, there are lesser days. And so as we look at this, it is so important for us to understand what God shows us in part. He also shows us in completion, and it points towards something that is ultimate. So there are three ways to look at the day of the Lord, and we'll begin to do that tonight. There is that local, that lesser day. And, and as you look at these things, when you look at what God has done in history past, and I use the term history past because it's not just biblical uh, past, it is historical past. It's the life of Moses. It's the life of the Babylonian Empire. Those things are relatively clearly mapped out in history. And so as you look at them, what you can see in the story of Moses in the Exodus, you see the great aspect of this. Amen? Moses was completely delivered. It All hell broke out in Egypt. Amen? The angel of death came through the camp of the Egyptians, and every firstborn child was killed. We don't know how many babies that was. But it was enough that what you heard at night was the wailing of mothers everywhere in Egypt as their children died. That's a pretty horrible thing. So you have the terrible and you have the great because in that the righteous were saved. Amen? You see the picture. In the Babylonian Assyrian conquest, you see exactly the same principle. So in the very deep past, in the closer time period to the days that these people lived in, we see how God shows us both the positive and the negative in all of these things. And so as we look at it tonight, as we finish this time together, I want you to be very, very carefully looking at your Bibles for the day of the Lord. And when you see it, especially, I don't know how one reads the book of Zechariah or the last from chapter 6 to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and goes, well, that'll never happen. Because God has made good on everything else He said would happen. And if He tells us by proxy, in other words, look, check out Moses. Did I not deliver him, but didn't it cost all the sinners life? The ones who wouldn't repent, didn't they die? When I told them the locust would come, and we'll see that in a moment, didn't the locust come, and didn't massive famine break out in the land, and people died, didn't that happen? But didn't the righteous get delivered? That's been God's plan all along. He has always delivered the righteous. And so we have some examples of these three days. In Joel chapter 1, we're going to get to an agricultural crisis. In Joel chapter 2, and I want you to recognize this, in Joel chapter 2, you're going to, you're going to see uh, the Assyrian invasion, which would be followed by the Babylonian invasion. These things were horrible. They were horrific. The entire sum and total of the Jewish people between those two invasions were either killed or taken captive. So it was a pretty dreadful day, amen? But aren't they still here? 
they're still here. Your Bible says that one day all Israel will be saved. Is all Israel saved yet? The answer is no. So if God's intent is to save all Israel, and he says that one day he's going to judge the world because of what they have done, we have done, the world has done, to Israel and to the land that is God's, that's the purpose for it, then I tell you that day is still yet future. As bad as those things were. So the third judgment, which is judgment is the third one that we'll see in the book of Joel, it happens to be in the third chapter, is God blessing Israel and at the same time judging the Antichrist's empire. So all of them point to each other. It's a progression of judgment, if you will. The first day of the Lord, agricultural. The second day of the Lord, a military crisis. The third day of the Lord, the rule, the reign of the Antichrist. And then ultimately, what we will see is that two have already passed. There have been wars and rumors of wars for thousands of years. They even predate the New Testament times that Jesus spoke in. There were wars and rumors of wars. And they were violent conflicts. But in this, what we really see is that God has never allowed anything to happen uh, that could even remotely fit what your Bible says will happen in that day. Because in that day includes everything in Joel and everything in Revelation. Everything in Zechariah and everything in Revelation. Everything in Isaiah and everything in Revelation. So even if most of what was described in the Old Testament had happened, it still leaves the link between the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and the day of the Lord in the New Testament. And they are the same day. Why did God bring this three-stage plan to be. I will tell you what is my opinion, and it's held by a lot of people. God's grace. If he had simply said, you know what, with the Jewish people in Joel's day, this is just crazy. You people don't get it. You're not going to get it. I'm just going to wipe you out right now and start over. Then God would have had to deal with the righteous people in wrath what does First Thessalonians 5 say? What God says is always true. Amen? So even though it was written in the New Testament, it was still true in the Old Testament times. God has not appointed anyone who's ever believed by faith in Christ to wrath. Never. Ever. Did they go through tough things? Yes, but not the wrath of God because that hasn't happened yet. That's how I can tell you that. The wrath of God has not fully been poured out on this earth yet. The second day of the Lord would come along after this agricultural crisis we'll see tonight, and it'll be the military invasion. People have forever, and you probably have heard all these stories. Well, you know, the uh, day of the Lord was, uh, and Mr. Theologian said so, uh, the day of the Lord, that was uh, World War II. And Hitler was the Antichrist, and, uh, well, then Stalin was the Antichrist, and then Pol Pot was the Antichrist, and then Mao Zedong was the Antichrist, and now President Obama's the Antichrist. Um, we've been trying to figure out who the Antichrist is for about 2,000 years, okay? We haven't guessed yet, because no one has been remotely evil enough 
to fill that role. And no one has ever gathered the entire world together under a one-world government and a one-world religion and a one-world monetary system. So this guy has not ever come. Now, have there been types? You better believe it. There have been windows into what this guy would do. And to that, I do point to the Second World War. Israel has had several great crises in in their history, amen? They had the Assyrians, they had the Babylonians, then they had Hitler. It was horrible. Six and a half million Jews perished in the Holocaust. But they're still here, and they still aren't saved. But you know what's really interesting? When you look at what happened to the Germans, you realize that most Germans never saw Hitler coming. They, they believed, they were the, they were the most industrialized nation on earth at the time. They were the most Christian nation. Did you hear what I said? They were the most Christian nation by percentage of population on earth at the time. Almost 90% Lutherans. And out of them came a world ruler. Uh, capable of crimes, nobody believed that would happen. So people have been believing that nobody believes that that's going to happen for a long time, and we've done it in the face of much less things, like World War II. Now think about World War II. When Hitler invaded Sudetenland, everybody's going, ah, it's just a military incursion. Within six years, 50 million people died. It's just a little military incursion. He'll come back. It'll be okay. You you see, nobody believed that something of that magnitude could happen. Did you hear what I said? Nobody believed. You realize the United States did not get involved for the first three and a half years of the war. Because nobody believed that something like that, it wasn't until we were bombed at Pearl Harbor that we said, oh, maybe we better get involved. Nobody believed that that could happen. Now, that was minuscule compared to what your Bible describes as the day of the Lord. The United States lost someplace between 465 and 490,000 people that died in the Second World War. That's peanuts compared to what your Bible says is going to happen in the day of the Lord. There are battles described in the day of the Lord where in one day, millions will die. The only battle that we can look at that remotely has that kind of carnage happened in the Civil War at Gettysburg. You you see, these things are something else. Yeah, those horrors affected Europe. They affected the entire world. So when we look at these things, I want you to see something here. There is a partial fulfillment, what we would call a type. Something that you can point to and go, God means business. There was a substantial fulfillment. 
Actually, the tribulation will be that substantial fulfillment in its greatest sense, but the Babylonian invasions were that way, the Assyrian invasion was that, that way, the Holocaust was that way, a substantial day of the Lord occurred. But ultimately, what's going to happen is Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to destroy everyone who's ever stood against him that remains on the earth. Everyone. Every last one. Not a good thing. You don't want to be here for that. And it ends ultimately with something that, again, is very terrible and very great. And that's the great white throne judgment. Again, you don't get to be there. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Thousand-year reign of Christ, God finally says it's time to wrap up Satan in chains and throw him in the bottomless pit. That's the culmination of the day of the Lord. It's over, because after that, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Amen? So as we look at this passage tonight, we'll pick up in verse 1, and it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. And give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even the days of your fathers? You, you see, he's reminding them that when God does something, he does it for a purpose. He says, has anything ever happened like this? Okay, can you look back in history? And they should have been able to go, hmm, Moses, yeah, yeah, that happened. Um, hmm. God meant what he said. God said what he meant. God did what he said he would do. And so he says to them, tell your children about it. Underline that, please. Tell your children about it. Frankly, it makes me upset that people skip the tough parts of Scripture and to refuse to tell their children about it. Because we have reached a time and place when I believe we're very close to the day of the Lord actually unfolding. And people are going, I don't want to tell my children about it. It's just too gruesome. It's, you know, people have been talking about that for years, and it's never happened, so I don't think it's going to happen. We didn't think World War II would happen, did we? Did anyone ever think when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, think about this for a second, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, that three years later we would drop nuclear weapons that we did not have on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I would say to you, nobody had any clue. So when God says that he is going to do something, it is not in mankind's best interest to ignore it and to not pass it along to our children. It is a bad course of action. And let your children tell their children. Notice how this happens. And their children tell another generation. And now he goes on to give an example. 
And he uses something that's, that's in meter here. And when we talk about poetry, it's in meter. It usually has rhyming words and those types of things. But I want you to notice that there is a progression here. The chewing locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the crawling locust is eaten. And what the crawling locust has left, the consuming locust has eaten. Do you get the picture? There is nothing left. And it goes from bad to worse. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. And so he first speaks to the descendants of the people, and he says to them, Look, guys, you need to get the picture here. God has a plan, and he, has, he is going to send the Messiah into this world, and part of that is we are supposed to worship him as our king. And if we don't do that, if all of these things that the Old Testament tells us about the coming Messiah happen, and this guy shows up, then God is going to do what is necessary to get our attention. God never, ever uses more pressure than is necessary, ever. He's incapable of doing it but he will always use as much pressure as is necessary. So when you think about what God has already done, and you think about where the world is now, one of the things that bothers me about America is we went through 9-11, amen? And you remember all the repentance? Church attendance went up 22% in one year after 9-11. 22% more people decided they were going to go to church. Man, well, you know, and they were super interested in anything to do with prophecy. Look where we sit now. Our world is more backwards and upside down, and this country is in a bigger mess than we were 12 years ago. Amen? You don't believe that. You haven't been reading many papers. You haven't watched much news. I don't care which channel you, you watch. I don't care what newspaper you read. I don't care if it's conservative or liberal. It doesn't matter to me. The truth of the matter is, the world is a worse place. When you have women from Great Britain converting to Islam and going to Kenya and becoming mass murderers, there's something seriously wrong with the world. When you have people dragging old people out of their cars and beating them to death because of the color of their skin, there's something seriously wrong with our world. It hasn't gotten better. God says there's going to be a day of the Lord to square it all the way. I want you to see something that the King James actually does this a little more justice, and I'll not read it for you, but if you read the King James or if you happen to have it there, you'll notice these names, the palmer worm and the canker worm and the caterpillar and all of these things. And the reason that that's helpful is because what it actually says is this. The way it should really be translated is this way, and it becomes rather sing-song. So here's what Joel was trying to do. He's actually giving them a catchy tune so that they can remember what it is that God was trying to show them. The gnaw's remnant, the swarmer eats. The swarmer's remnant, the devourer eats. The devourer's remnant, the consumer eats. He's saying, when God does what God's going to do to show us how wrong we are, there's going to be nothing left. The reason we know that is the Hebrew words that are used here. He uses the, the word that's translated into English, palmer, word, palmer worm, is actually the Hebrew word kasim. And that's a gnar, that's something that chews. 
the word that's translated locust is arbeth, which means swarming. So you get the picture? At first it kind of starts out, well, there's a couple of locusts that pop up out of the ground, and they kind of start doing what locusts do, they chew. Amen? You ever seen a locust? They're ugly. And they're big. We're not talking little tiny grass. We're talking three, four-inch long grasshoppers. These are big bugs. And then he goes on and uses the word yelek, which is canker worm, which actually means devourer. Do you see how it gets worse? The gnar. Just kind of sits there and chews. The swarmer. All of a sudden, now there's more of them. There was two. Now there's 2,000. Then there's two million. Then there's half a billion. And then he uses the word that is the most evil of all of them, hasil. The Hebrew word hasil means consumer. Gone. It's as if it is all eaten up. So what Joel is saying is, guys, when this thing unfolds, what you're seeing right now, here's what's happening. God's given us a picture of judgment. It's going to start out as a chewing, and then there's going to be more that swarm. And then those swarmers are going to sit around, and they're going to kind of devour everything they can. And then finally, there's going to be a consumption of everything that's left. That's not a pretty picture. You see, when this happens, and we have some relatively recent history to look back, in 1950, there was a swarm of desert locusts that engulfed the countries of Jordan, Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. During that swarm, there were times when at the visible ground level, where you and I stand, between 18 and 30 feet above the ground, for two and a half thousand square miles, there were locusts between 18 and 30 feet deep flying. And when locusts land, they do exactly what this passage says. First, a few come in and they start to gnaw. And then a swarm comes, and then the swarm goes over itself to inhabit a new area, and then the gnawers and the destroyers stay behind until there's nothing left, and then they become the chewers. So the picture here is, we're getting chewed on, we're getting gnawed on, we're getting eaten up, we're getting consumed. You you see, during that time, when that terrible infestation happened, uh, what ultimately happened was there was no crop left for almost two years in the entire Middle East. None. Food had to be imported. So Joel's saying, look out your window. Check it out. It's going to not be good. And God's warning us. I think God's still warning mankind. And he goes on and he calls them drunkards. And I think it's interesting that he uses that. Because when people get drunk, isn't it interesting how they will sit and allow destruction to happen? It's like, well, you know, whatever, man. You know, I'm just kind of over here in my lawn chair. (laughs) Wow, that's a horde of locusts. It's eating Bob. (laughs) Boy, he can't run very fast. People, when they're drunk, lose their capacity to be sober. What did 1 Thessalonians 5 say? Be sober. 
sober-minded. Think correctly. See it for what it is. The day is coming. And God's going to send the devourer back to this earth. Hard to think of Jesus leading that front. But what he's going to devour is sin. What he's going to devour is everyone who's ever come against the nation Israel and everyone who's ever defamed the land that belongs to God. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why I'm very concerned about which side of the fence that we sit on. Because when Jesus comes as a conquering king, anybody else that's here, if they're on the wrong side of Israel, they're on the wrong side of God. Amen? That's why we care about the nation Israel. We care about mankind in general. But I care very specifically about the nation Israel because whatever happens to them, God is watching. Always has, always will. Notice verse 6. For a nation has come up against whose land? My land. Who's the my? It's God's. Not Israel's land. It's not the UN's land. It's not for superpowers to decide whose land it is. It didn't start with the Balfour Declaration. It didn't start with the Transjordan area that now has been condensed down to this little tiny nation called Israel. God's land is all of Israel, all of Jordan, most of Iraq, almost all of Saudi Arabia, most of northern Egypt. It is, his land is currently defiled by people who hate him. You ever wondered why there's turmoil in the Middle East? Because the land belongs to God, and people who hate God have inhabited God's land. And furthermore, they are against, notice what's said next, his vine. They come up against my land, strong and without number. What's the largest religious group on earth? Islam. Now, Hindus right there, but it's Islam. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has fangs of a fierce lion. And he has laid waste to whose vine? My vine. Who in the Old Testament is God's vine? It's Israel. So the issue is God's land and God's people, Israel. And we're going to see that very clearly when we get to chapter. And ruin my fig tree. Whose is fig tree? Also Israel. For he has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Do you realize that for 2,000 years the land of Israel was a desert waste? And it was thrown away. And it wasn't until 1948 when the Jews came back and began to move water around from the Sea of Galilee and irrigate that land that it even was habitable. It's God's land. He gave it to his people. Woe unto them who transgress God's land and God's people. And its branches are made white, stripped literally. Therefore, any violation of the land or the people of Israel is a desecration of God's word. 
So when someone comes to me and they say, you know, I'm just so tired of this whole Israeli thing. I mean, they're such a small group of people, and I mean, I just don't really care. I mean, why can't they just go someplace else so we don't have turmoil and strife? Uh, because God said so. It's God's land. He gave it to them, and they are his people. That is the end of the conversation for Pastor Jeff. I don't need to hear a UN resolution. I do not need to hear my president go on TV and, well, you know, you guys need to give away more land. Do you realize when our president says that, he is putting us in harm's way as a nation? And if you don't care, you don't care what your Bible says. hate to tell you that, but that's the case. Your Bible says differently. You either believe it or you don't. Verse 80 says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth. The only time that a woman was ever girded with sackcloth was at the death of her husband. And in this case, it seems as though there was a wedding that was about to be that never took place. That's a pretty sad situation. Who was Israel originally to God? Supposed to be his bride. Stripped bare for the husband of her youth. Notice that. Supposed to be wedded to the Lord, but didn't want any part of it. The grain offering and the drink offering, for they have been cut off from the house of the Lord, and the priest mourn who ministered to the Lord, and the field is wasted. Now he's going back and he's saying, Guys, as you see, these locusts come, and this locust plague happened. Wiped out the land. He said, when you see the vine stripped, bad thing. When you see the fig trees with no leaves, no fruit, bad thing. God's trying to speak to us. And at that day and time, they had intermarried between the pagan heathen peoples of the land, and there was really no evidence that they were actually God's people. And he says... For the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat, for the barley, because the harvest field has perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, and all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from all of the sons of men. And so as they looked out at the devastation of this locust plague, now I can tell you that if this locust plague is like some of the locust plagues we know, there would have been nothing left in what we call Israel. Nothing. Completely stripped bare. You realize what happens when people starve, amen? Because it wasn't like they could go to Jordan and go to Walmart. It wasn't like they could hop in a boat and go to Spain. Well, we'll just go someplace where there's more food. They couldn't get imports of fruits and vegetables from other growing regions of the world. When this happened, people starved to death. Likely decimated the population of the northern kingdom to near nothing. And so in that... Basically, as he looked out at these ravaged fields and farms, he says, God's trying to speak to us. God's trying to tell us something. He wouldn't do this because he hates us. He does this because he loves us. There's something seriously wrong with the way we're handling ourselves. 
In verse 13, he says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come and lie at night in a sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering, the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. They couldn't even worship the Lord. You have to understand that agriculturally speaking, in a, in a sense of being able to raise livestock, the desecration of the land also stopped the sacrifices in the temple. They could not worship God. So when heathenism takes over in any country and you cannot worship God, it's not a good thing. It's not a tolerance thing. It's not a, oh, we're more enlightened thing. It is an, oh my God, we need to watch out because desolation's coming. The body of Christ, as Paul wrote to the church at Thessaloniki, be sober, be vigilant, be watchful, understand what time it is. When you see these things happening, you better be awake because God's on the move. God's doing something. It's going to be a great day, and it's going to be a terrible day. For those who know the Lord, heaven waits. Amen? And I can't wait. In that regard, Jesus, come back. Open the heavens, rend them, blow that trumpet, let's go home. Amen? But don't you know people who don't know Jesus? Why do you think we're supposed to be sober and vigilant? It's because they need to know Jesus. That's why he said, tell your children. Have them tell their children. And have them tell their children. Because God's not doing this for any other purpose than to get our attention so that we turn to Him. And he says, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. They would have taken a shofar, they would have blown the horn, which was a time to sound an assembly to the nearest synagogue. You would go there, you would, sacred assembly meant that you got on your face before the Lord and cried out to Yahweh Lord of hosts. God, speak to us as your people. We want to hear you. We haven't been listening. Gather the elders all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The word that's used for cry there is supplicate. It means to be so wretchedly distressed as to call from the very center of your being to God. You know what troubles me? There's not much supplication in our world today. There's not much supplication in church. There are not many people who fear the Lord. And there are very few people who actually cry out to God saying, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I want to know. I see these horrible things happening, and I'm like, where are the supplicators? When we meet together on Tuesday as men, when we gather together and pray what we'll do next Wednesday night, we need to supplicate. Because you know what I see? I see a locust cloud. You know what I see? I see the Assyrian army on the horizon. 
You know what I see? I see the Babylonian army right behind him. You know what I see? I see Gog and Magog rising up. I see the Antichrist in the wings. The reason I know that? The fig tree. The reason I know that? The vine. The reason I know that? Is the church is weak. Cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come, see this, as destruction from the Almighty. What are we doing to prepare? Where are our heads at? What are we doing to tell people about Jesus? Because I guarantee you, when the first couple of locusts flew into Joel's hometown, they're near Megiddo. Everybody's going, I'll just give him a raid. Look, there's another one. Oh, and there's 50 over there. I guarantee you, when they saw the first couple of locusts, they were going, it'll never happen. When they saw the Assyrian front forces, it'll never happen. When the first Babylonians crested the hill of Mount Scopus near Jerusalem, it'll never happen. When people read the book of Revelation, it'll never happen. Nah. Destroy everything, it'll never happen. It's gonna happen. Do I know when? No. No man does. But I do know the signs of the time. I'm watching the horizon. If I see any locusts, I'm going to really be preaching. So if you think this is bad, wait for a couple of locusts to show up. You see any Babylonians, Assyrians, wait until they get here. Why? Because the day of the Lord is going to come as destruction from the Almighty. That's what it says. It's not going to come because there's been socioeconomic inequity. It's not going to come because there's racial divide. It's not going to come because us lousy Christians have messed up the world. It's going to come because God's going to say, Enough. I'm done. And Jesus is coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you of the promise that you've not appointed us to wrath but unto salvation. Hallelujah. We thank you, Jesus. We pray tonight, Lord, that as we return to our warm homes, God, our our places that you've so graciously given us to live, to our full pantries, God, to the cars in our parking lot, to the fuel that's in them, Lord, we realize that time is, is short. Lord, the world is running down. And just as nobody believed the Assyrians were coming, nobody believed the locusts were coming, nobody believed the Babylonians would come or the Medes or the Persians 
or the Romans or Hitler or any other despot that's ever walked this earth, so judgment comes from your hand. And God, for us to ignore it is to do so at our own peril. Lord, at the peril of those who don't know you, would we be busy about our Father's business? Would we be bold as Joel was? Would we tell our children and our children tell someone else's children and their own children, Lord, until the whole world hears. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.